Hello, and welcome to the episode of Bitcoin in Asia from Bitcoin Magazine. I'm John Riggins, and as our guest this week, I'm happy to welcome Bobby Lee. Bobby, of course, is a Bitcoin and especially a China Bitcoin OG as a co-founder and CEO of BTC China, later BTCC, China's first Bitcoin exchange, a board member at the Bitcoin Foundation way back when, presently the founder and CEO of Ballet Crypto, and always an insightful voice on the importance of Bitcoin and where it sits in the macro landscape. Our talk focuses mostly on that macro landscape and the cycles that Bitcoin has followed uh, to this point. Recorded on July 27th, as Bitcoin crossed 11,000 USD yet again, Bobby shares what he sees as likely points along this next Bitcoin cycle. Talks about running companies in China amidst the always developing macro issues that uh, come with that. Uh, and talks about some of the verticals that he's worked in from exchange services to mining uh, to now hardware uh, and more. I think it's an insightful conversation and timely, and I hope you enjoy it. Bobby, welcome to the show. It's great to be talking. Thank you. Great to ha- uh, great for you to have me, John. Yeah, great to be for here. Sure. The legend, the legend, Bobby Bobby C. Lee. Uh, so really excited to have you on. Obviously, a, a, a you know pioneer, uh, a legend in uh, Bitcoin overall, and then uh, you know early in China. Obviously, um, want to start here with uh, kind of obviously today. The last couple of weeks is we've seen some momentum building. Uh, and you have tweeted or resurfaced one of your old tweets about uh, price predictions. So to, to start off with a, just kind of a fun topic, uh, price predictions. What, how yes. are you thinking about this next cycle that's coming up? Where do you think we are now? Sure, sure. Well, so what, what's, um, so I guess uh, you must be referring to a tweet I made in December of 2018. Right. Uh, so, so we're caught, you know, Bitcoin just literally crossed $10,000 in the last 24 hours. And this time it feels a little bit different. Obviously, Bitcoin has crossed into $10,000, I think multiple times in the last uh, three, four years. The first time it happened in uh, probably either late November or early December of 2017. So three and a half years, two and a half years ago, Bitcoin crossed into $10,000 for the first time. Um, and then of course, after the big rise up to $20,000 in December, it went back down. And then 2018 was like, like a bear market year. 2019 was very slow. And I think, I think 2019, we crossed into 10,000 and we, we traced back down. And then we started the year, um, you know, under $10,000, right? And we're crossing, into the, we're crossing into again. And this time it feels different because of the global macroeconomic situation with the pandemic all over the world, with all the money printing, you know, with a huge asset bubble rising prices. I mean, stocks are going up like crazy, especially certain tech stocks. Uh, and also um, uh, the, uh, what do you call it? The gold, right? Gold has really crossed into an all-time high as well. So yeah. just in the, also in the last 24, 48 hours, gold broke its all-time high of $1,920 that was set in 2011. And prior to that, the record was about $800 set in the 1980s, in the early 1980, around there. So now, you know, we've seen gold, you know, rally up in, in 1980 and then rally up again in 2011. And that was 2011 was a great, was right after the financial crisis. And now, uh, very quickly, gold has rallied up again. You know, I think I want yeah, to check. Yeah, a little bit more of a lag back then, it seems like. Yeah, let's see if it hit 2000 yet. I think it's at 
what is it at? It's at $1,942 right now. So it's exciting. It's exciting to see gold go up. And obviously, a lot of the altcoins uh, have gone up a lot. I mean, Bitcoin maybe is a little bit slow compared to them. But it's good to see Bitcoin back above $10,000. And yeah. what I tweeted in December 2018 was that if you follow the pattern, I've, I've been in Bitcoin since 2011. So for the last nine years, I've seen this pattern over and over again. Uh, it's almost getting boring. Um, <laughs> Where, uh, where after all-time high, it would, it would take a year and it would really crash down, uh, go down to and lose 85% of its value. So if you look at that happened in 2013, happened in 2017, and now, it's hap now if it happens again, then what we're saying is that uh, the low was $2,500, $3,000, and then the rebound another takes another year and a half, two years. And again, it's right after the block halving. So there's a chance, you know, if history repeats itself, I'm thinking there's a chance that Bitcoin's rally could start now or at the end of 2020 this year. And then all of next year could be a long rally or a short rally. And then it could end up, you know, five, 10 or 20 times the all-time high. So five times the all-time high would be $100,000. 20 times, uh, 10 times would be $200,000. And if you do the 20, 25 times, it could be half a million dollars. So my, my top peak for this next rally between you know, two hundred and five hundred thousand dollars, and then it'll take another rally, probably another four to six years later, to take it to a million dollars. That's my that's my take. Yeah, and uh, the, these kind of cycles around havings, people who've been in Bitcoin a, a long time seem to kind of trend towards that way of thinking about price too. And you you think we're on the upswing now, uh, essentially, in, in in that next cycle? Well, we we don't know until until it's all over whether this is the the final bull uh, final the real bull run or not, right? So, but but this time it feels different just because of the macroeconomic situation. There's so much money around, right? The reason prices go up basically is because of the, frankly speaking, the value of the US dollar is going down. So, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out if you keep printing money, then everything price, every the price of everything goes up, even if the fundamental value didn't change, but the measurement price goes up, right? So, sure. so that's something normal people have a very hard time getting their head around. They think that, prices go up it means the value goes up but to me pricing going up and the value going up is two different things right yeah, yeah. and uh, you mentioned you mentioned kind of getting into the getting into bitcoin in 2011 so the last couple of cycles that we've we've seen maybe looking back at like 2013 and then 2017 uh can you give us some context for where you were then and maybe how your thinking on bitcoin has evolved or, or, or become more nuanced in different ways just kind of take us through your your yeah. thinking on bitcoin in those last three cycles if we call this the third. Yeah, yeah sure. So, uh, so th this is technically not the third. Th there were, so if you look at the, if this is the right. third cycle, you're talking about the second cycle, which is 2017 peak December. And then the first cycle was 2013 December peak of $1,200. Technically that's not even the first, right? So before that $1,200 peak, uh, it actually peaked at $165 in June of 2013. And prior to, and before that, it sort of peaked out at, um, at I think 26 or between 20 and 30, $40. Yeah. Yeah, 30, yeah, $32 sounds right. $32 in April of 2013. And before that it was, you know, uh, 20 some dollars before that, you know, but basically, you know, back then I wasn't, it was for me, it was back then it was a hobby. I wasn't full-time into Bitcoin back in 2011, 2012. So it was curious to see Bitcoin trading, you know, $10 sideways for, for six months, go to 20 and then go back down to one or $2 mm -hmm. and then come back roaring up to be $20. Right. 
So, and even before I got into Bitcoin, Bitcoin peaked, you know, went above a dollar, the dollar parity. That was before I got in. Okay. So that was a big, big deal, right? That dollar parity for Bitcoin. So those are the really, really old timers who were there in 2009, 2010. Um, so the, the, the cycles have, have been, they've been numerous. Uh, now the time between the cycles can, can change, you know, back then it was much less liquidity. Uh, the halvings didn't make, make a lot of difference. It was more about discovering value and all that stuff. So my, so it, so the first real big run up when the media, when the whole world was watching was 2013 at the time I was running, uh, the Chinese, Chinese exchange, btcchina.com. And, um, it was, it was amazing. It was just like, we saw, we saw that cycle starting from the summer of 2013. People started, you know, buying Bitcoin. There were large, large amounts of new users, opening accounts, depositing money, buying Bitcoin. And, uh, and then there's a huge sort of swarm army of traders, people who are trading it to, uh, to sort of get the, uh, edge, right. Day trading essentially. So that's that the 2013 really kicked off the so the trading market for yeah and you're you're running an exchange at that point pretty exciting thing to yeah, be doing yeah, yeah. first first yeah, in China we're the the exactly BTC China <laughs> that that got started in uh, June of 2011 the very first one in China yeah and then of course the 2017 exchange uh, sorry 2017 uh, bull run uh, we actually closed our Chinese exchange in September of that year so the bull run happened. Despite China shutting off all its exchanges, it happened, you know, starting in October, November. But it was very exciting to see a crossover twelve hundred dollars uh, into two thousand dollars. I remember when it crossed two thousand dollars, like it was like crazy. It's like gold crossing two thousand dollars today, right? <laughs> kind of like that perspective. Um, and then you know, two, three, four, and then four, five thousand was a blur. It just went up so fast. And then by November it was seven thousand, and then it was eight, nine thousand. I think nine thousand. I don't think Bitcoin spent any time in the nine thousand dollar range. It just popped up into ten thousand, and then it was like ten, ten, twelve, fifteen thousand, sixteen thousand, and then I think it spent a day or two in uh, in the seventeen, eighteen, nineteen thousand, twenty thousand dollar range. So obviously, you know, it's very compressed when when it really does peak up. You still have a business that operates uh, partly out of China. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how? Bitcoin being seen in China has changed over those last uh, seven years and uh, kind of its importance also. You, know, you, you mentioned uh, there was a lot of hoopla, a lot of hype around any uh, government policy around Bitcoin essentially through 2018 maybe. And that's maybe not as much of a, a price driver as it used to be. But talk a little bit about that kind of uh, Bitcoin in China for the last seven years, I guess. Sure. So Bitcoin in China started out with um, with mining, right? In 2011, I was mining, and I know there were a few other miners because uh, the story was uh, I would I was living in Shanghai in 2011, summertime, and that's when I started mining. Uh, uh, and I would go to these stores trying to buy up the the um, GPUs, these graphics cards, graphics coprocessor cards for the computer for the PC. And almost every store I went to, they ran out. And the store owner would tell me, oh, someone else came and bought them all yesterday or, or three days ago. <laughs> so I was a step slower. So I know someone was uh, cornering the market for the graphics card uh, at the time. Um, so that's when BTC China launched. And I think the early traders were the miners, you know, mining and selling for cash and hobbyists and so on. Uh, the real trading came in in 2013, 2014. Uh, and of course, by 2016, 17, we had, we, but in 2015, 16, there were a lot of uh, actually uh, what they call uh, multi-level marketing scams. Um, uh, so there's a lot of these multi-MMM, like 3M, MMM, mm -hmm. 
was a was a famous Russian uh, multi-level marketing scam that took a lot of people's money. Uh, and also, um, and also in by 1617, there's a lot of ICOs and tokens and altcoins. So those are the, the trends. And of course, this year it's DeFi uh, and all that. So I guess I guess every cycle we need a narrative. So so that's what I was telling people. Even though I don't necessarily have to believe in the narrative, but what I do know is I, I don't control the market, right? So I can't even if I don't like the narrative, I can't put a stop to it, right? If there's enough people who want it, there's enough momentum and enough sort of uh, reason to push it uh then people do and pe and there are people who who organize these narratives and push the narratives and then they bring in a lot of people and you know some people make money and some people lose money so it's just <laughs> sure. it's just it's just the it's just the nature of life yeah it's a little <laughs> bit unfortunate that people have to lose money in the next cycle but that's just the reality for sure there's been a little bit of, a little bit of back and forth in a wechat group that we're in about uh, uh uh, kind of that topic of narratives and uh, you know how important the ICO narrative was in 2017 and now you know maybe DeFi is that narrative you know you you, you mentioned that uh, you know narratives aren't the driver to you essentially but there needs to be a story around it for uh, a broader adoption it, yeah. any other thoughts on kind of this narrative this cycle yeah yeah so so again just to just to clarify my point I'm not saying that we need a narrative for a bull cycle but rather the bull cycle can only happen if there is a narrative Right. When there's no narrative, there can't be a bull market, right? You just, people have to buy into something and then, and then their minds overpower them. And then that's what leads to the action for the mass frenzy, you know, buying action. I mean, what is a bull market? A bull market is people are just very excited, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out rally. So people do that. So the current narrative, I think um, there's, there's a few that I can, and again, we don't know until after the fact and point back to sure. that was the narrative. So since we're in the beginning, potentially in the beginning, so I think the potential narratives are DeFi, you know, decentralized finance. Again, again, that's a very loaded term, uh, just like blockchain was a few years ago. People say, oh, everything blockchain, everything blockchain. I think we got over that. And everything token, everything token, I think we got over that. So I think that the current one is DeFi, decentralized finance, the idea that you could use uh, decentralized, you know, smart contracts, decentralized exchanges, decentralized platforms, to either borrow money, give money, to, to get interest, get paid interest or pay interest for loans and stuff like that, or to do atomic swaps. All these things have their sort of uh, sort of uh, fun use cases, if you will. And um, it, I, to be honest, I'm not convinced yet, but I'm, I'm, I'm you know, leaving my, my mind open to see how, how it's going to take off or not. Um, right. But, you know, for, for for the people out there who are who are less initiated, uh, I can see them get really uh, really riled up for this and get excited and throw money in, right? Sure. So when one of the coins you know can double or go up fifty percent in a day, that pushes everything up, pushes ETH up, and then that subsequently pushes BTC up, right? So that it, that's what it really does feel to. like. It it really does feel like the start here, but again, uh, we won't know <laughs> until hindsight. But it really does feel yeah. like. Yeah, in fact, I was looking at the BTC price because that, that's what I care about. Uh, I think that's the main barometer for me. Um, it, it went from, you know, what is it, 10,000 to almost 11,000. Let me check right now. Has it has a cross 11,000. And I'm thinking, I don't want it, like, as much as I'm excited that the rally might be there, now it's $10,941 on, on coin market cap. And I'm actually worried. I, I don't want it to go up that fast. But if it goes up that fast, it, it, it's gonna it's gonna come crashing down even faster. So I would rather see a more sustained build up that goes up slowly. Um, 
you know, just, just, I was a little bit worried that it's reaching 11,000 so fast, just within a day. Right. So mm-hmm. it'd mm-hmm. almost be better if we just go up a little bit slow, slower, but we'll see, we'll see how the, how the market behaves. Yeah. And then in terms of the narratives, the other narrative is of course, the global macro macroeconomic situation, all the money printing, um, you know, all the stimulus packages in the United States and Europe and Asia and China, Hong Kong, all these countries have stimulus packages. It just throws money into the hands of normal people. And of course, normal people spend it on food, on rent and regular stuff, you know, the, the, the middle income, the low income. But, uh, but the reality, the sad reality is the rich may not be getting the, the handouts, but they're getting it into big government grants and loans and stuff like that. So the rich are actually getting a lot more money. And that's why the corporations are buying back their stock. They're do- that's why a lot of people are putting more money in stocks. So that's why the P ratio is going up the roof. You know, so, so you see asset prices rise. You see real estate prices rise because inflation, sorry, because interest rates are down, makes them more affordable. So, you know, get a 30-year loan. It's much more affordable with lower interest rates. That's why prices are a bit up. So real estate prices are up, stock prices are up, gold prices are up, and now crypto prices are also up. For sure. And you, you touched on gold at the kind of beginning of this. And now gold, precious metals again here. Uh, you know, r- really, you know, it's, it's been a narrative of kind of gold bugs and, and you know, it's a little too derogatory. People who uh, appreciate gold uh, for a long time, but we really are kind of seeing unprecedented circumstances right now. Uh, yeah, exactly. Has being in China, spending a lot of time over there, has that uh, given you any kind of different perspective? Yeah, I've I've always been the gold bug. I've always been a, a someone who appreciates the value of gold. I've been buying gold myself since two thousand three, so way before Bitcoin. Um, uh, and the 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 reason is because gold is fundamentally the truest form of money. Okay, so call me old school, call me the range, so whatever you want. But I do believe gold is the is the original form of money, okay, and and the digital form of that would be Bitcoin. That's the closest closest thing. In some ways, physical gold is better than Bitcoin. There's some physical characteristics of gold, uh, such that it's not it's it's completely fireproof. It's like you cannot be destroyed. Um, even in the nuclear act, nuclear bomb goes off, the gold is still there. It may melt, it may change shape, but it's still there. Fundamentally, the gold is is there. So that's what's really good about it. And I think the Chinese people see that too. So China and India have been big, have been countries where the population has been big, really big into buying gold over the years. So China as a country has built up the gold reserves. Uh, one day it will rival the United States uh, Treasury's gold. stands as supposed to 8,000 tons of gold. Um, so China's only at 1,000, 2,000 tons, but I think, I think it could really go up in the coming years. And then for the people, you know, they've been buying gold for the longest time, right? China, China, you know, even if you look at history, historically, the, the emperors and all that in the dynasties, they have gold and silver. And those are all very strong, uh, units of, uh, wealth for, for, for their corporate treasury, for the, for the government, for the kingdom, if you will. So I think that's happening again. I think. Just uh, people in China are, you know, the, the initiated who are technical, who are into crypto, they're buying crypto just in that same sense. Yeah. 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 Uh, kind of another thing as we enter this next cycle, uh, we think um, the, you know, and we're talking about kind of another order of magnitude, essentially, of growth with, with the 10x of Bitcoin's price. How does the industry mature here? So for sure. I am convinced we're going to see Bitcoin go up another 10x in price. And likewise, I'm, going to, I'm convinced for sure Bitcoin will see another 10x in participation. Meaning the, I think if you look at, if you estimate how many people are owning Bitcoin, whether it's 10 million or close to 100 million, I think we're going to see 
you know, 10 X of that. So maybe a hundred million to a billion people. And then after that, it's probably one more cycle, to take it to the rest of the world. Okay. So this, this could, this could take 20 years, right? So I'm, I'm here for the long haul. This could take a good 20 years, just like the internet took a good 20 years to mature. I, I perfectly, you know, perfectly fine. Um, yeah. So, so after this happens, financial institutions will have to, will have to play a game with crypto. Like just recently they announced that uh, bank U S banks can now, for example, get into business. Yeah. Of is that, how important is that in your mind? I, I think that's great. I think that's very important. I think uh, I was surprised it went about this way, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, either way it's good. But uh, the reality, I was just coming to a friend, like the reality, probably vast majority of banks are too dinosaur and too old to even dip their toes in this. A few sort of internet banks, a few sort of, uh, you know, of those more fast moving ones will start first offering depository services for crypto. And I think that's a great start. I think that's what we need. Uh, and this will also give the ex- existing exchanges some competition, right? In terms of where you can store your crypto. So these are, these will be licensed, regulated custodians mm-hmm. of cryptocurrency. I think that's a great step. I think it's very, very important that it happens. And of course, I'm looking forward to the ETF trading uh, from the SEC as well. So the U.S. thankfully is is an open country, democratic, where the rules, where, where you know, where the people with the will can set the rules and the law and so on. So, so that um, I think when there's a will, there's a way. Right, the expression when the people want it, the laws will eventually allow for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of good examples of that, and that's that's what I love about America is is that sort of nation is that sort of thing where the government is of the people and by the people for the people. Right. So that's why our rules and laws will eventually cater to what we want as citizens, as residents of the country. So if people like Bitcoin, then eventually Bitcoin will be, will be doable, whether it's for payments, whether it's for savings, whether it's for investments and all that stuff. Yeah. BTCC used to have one of the largest mining pools and you, you uh, dealt a lot with uh, mining hardware. Do you have any thoughts as someone who's been in that space in a big way on uh, kind of uh, where mining is trending, especially maybe yeah. geographically? Back then, you weren't exactly importing stuff because you were it was manufactured yeah. in China and you were setting it up there. Just any, any thoughts? Yeah. 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 Thoughts so my, mining, mining is great. If you think about it, I mean, if one thing, uh, I, I just, I, I think we forget about it, about mining. It's just so much fun. You kind of have a twinkle in your eye talking let me, about it now. Let, let, me, let me give you a perspective. Okay, What we're saying is, we're saying that you can use computers, plug it in, run some program, and it can make money for you, right? Like <laughs> that was just so ludicrous. We say that like, well, you could run a program and make money for you that in the 1990s. That was ludicrous. Like how can that, you know, the, the closest thing we did, I did was running SETI at home. I don't know if you know, these are screensavers that would do the calculations, you know, try to find the alien life forms on SETI, uh, search for extraterrestrials, right? Okay. Uh, so SETI at home ran that. But anyways, so, so modern mining, you know, came with Bitcoin. And uh, what's amazing is people, and of course, you know, Chinese people have, are very entrepreneurial. They want, they want to find, they, they'll pick up any penny they find on the ground and they'll, they'll squeeze every, every penny out of, out of every process, right? So, so uh, it's, it's just a hardworking attitude, sort of no waste attitude of the Chinese people. I love mm-hmm. it. Um, so I myself did that, right? I mined Bitcoin in 2011. Um, as a hobby and, and now people don't do it just as a, people still do it as a hobby, but more importantly, people do it at the industrial, industrial uh, scale level. So they, they literally set up huge data centers and, and thousands of machines, you know, with, with gigawatts of electricity uh, pumping through to do 24 by seven mining. 
And uh, that, that's just very exciting. And I think obviously China still has a very large share, but the reality is mining will go to the country where electricity is cheap. So whether it's renewable electricity, whether it's geothermal, solar, uh, or, or, or um, wind, right? That kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, or wh whichever place has nuclear electric power that's for, that can be done really cheaply. So that's where it's going to go. And the best part about mining is that any country can do it. Even if you have slightly more expensive electricity, you can still do it. So countries like Iran and North Korea, I know they're taboo countries. I know they're, they're on the sanctions list. I know we can't do business with Iran and North Korea. But the reality, the fun thing is they are mining. They are mining Bitcoin, right? And um, to me, that's a great equalizer for the world, right? You don't, you don't have to be a country resourceful, resource rich country where you have oil or gold in your, or coal in your underground, right? You can be a country with none of that. And you could, you could, you know, you could be a small island nation and um, have very, you know, have a good workforce. You have a lot of electricity. You could mine Bitcoin. So to me, that's a, not just Bitcoin. You could mine Bitcoin and other proof of work. Uh, cryptocurrencies so that's very very exciting i think um i think the next century will show that um it's about intellect and not about what you're born with yeah with you on that and then uh maybe uh any, any thoughts on kind of the current exchange landscape out there obviously another <laughs> business that you were in in a big way you sold btcc in uh, 2017 yeah. as you mentioned well what do you any kind of thoughts on what you see out there now maybe in china specifically and then kind of overall you're uh, yeah so i I, I like them all, but I don't put my money on any of them. So, that, <laughs> so that's Price a sort keys. of summary. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So obviously you can put small amounts of money on there, but, but definitely don't put your stash on any exchange. That's my, that's my word of wisdom to the people. I know people still do that. I don't know why they do that. It's just like, basically, unless you're trading 100% of your net wealth, uh, you shouldn't have your coins on exchanges. Only have whatever amount you need to have on there for your exchange purposes, for your trading purposes, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so there are a lot of them. I don't want to name any by name specifically, but uh, it's good to see that they're all getting more and more regulated. But unfortunately, as many, as many of them are getting more and more regulated, still more are coming onto the scene, which are fly-by-night operations, which are very scary and very dangerous. Uh, very unexperienced people or people with not the best intent. So eventually they run away with their funds and stuff like that. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit scary. Yeah. And on that right regulatory side, those obviously something that you had to be, uh, the BTCC had to be uh, on the ball about, uh, you know, constantly uh, yes. through, through the you know years that you ran it. Uh, any, I guess any any insights on that process in China and and if it's different there than it is in other places in your view? Yeah, and it's maybe how it's different. Let me yeah yeah let me let me let me explain this. I'm, I'm gonna maybe dive in a little bit into politics, but not not overly. Um, it comes down to how the country is run politically, right? Because in a democracy, essentially the laws are created by the Congress by the legislature, which are elected by the people. So eventually, in all democracy, eventually the law reflects the will of the people. That's why in many countries today, you have legalized marijuana. If people want to smoke marijuana, well, so be it. Then the laws will eventually cater to that. One day, maybe all everyone wants to smoke, uh, you know, smoke crack, cocaine. 
then then they'll legalize it. But, but maybe that won't happen because there's not enough people who want crack and cocaine. But the point is, with marijuana, if enough people want it, it becomes legal. And it's legal in Nevada. It's legal in many countries in Europe. It's legal in starting to be many states in the U.S. as well. Okay, so there's not nothing about whether I want to smoke marijuana. It's just the fact that the will of people want it. So same thing for Bitcoin. If the people want to legalize Bitcoin, whether it's for payments, whether it's for as money, whether it's for as a college retirement savings investment, then it's going to happen. That's why I have ultimate confidence in the U.S. system that Bitcoin ETF will eventually get through. Bitcoin as savings for IRA, for college savings, it will, it will happen. And right now we already see Bitcoin uh, custody being able to be done by banks, right? That's very exciting. So that's going to happen as well. Do you ever lose yeah, a step. Does that happen this year? Or does, does that happen in the next Maybe 12 months? Maybe not this year. I, yeah, it, it happens in the next three years, I think. Next three it may not happen in the next 12 months, but it happens in the next three years. I mean, yeah. Anyways, so let's move on. So for China, the challenge is this. The challenge is the, gov- the laws in China are set by the, the party, by the, by the government, central government in Beijing. And, and unfortunately, it's a single party system there. So, and until that party responds to the will of the people, then the law will not respond to the will of the people. Does that make sense? So that's a disconnect there. So if the people want Bitcoin exchanges to be legal, but it doesn't get through to Beijing, then it won't happen. So that's why if you're doing business in China in a regulated environment, in the end, it's not about what the people want. It's about what the, what the, what the guy in Beijing wants, right? So, sure. so you, better, you better pick a business and industry where you have confidence that that's what the government wants. So for example, surveillance, uh, and, uh, cont- you know, whether it's surveillance technologies, you know, that's obviously very, very popular in Beijing. So those kind of businesses are taking off like crazy, right? Whether it's facial recognition, artificial yeah. intelligence, facial recognition, you know, mass surveillance, you know, that kind of stuff, like, like, uh, even, even payment apps, right? Payment apps that are centralized. I mean, that, that has gotten a lot of government support, but there's only be a few winners. So you can't, it's not going to be a lot of fair competition for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and um, kind of part of your, your next act, I guess, uh, you're, uh, as you said, you started in mining and the exchange uh, business uh, very early. Yes. You've kind of transitioned into uh, uh, kind of a uh, hardware security type of business. Talk a little bit about that, that transition. Yeah. What, why this is what you're, you're doing now, I guess. Yeah. So I sold my company, my exchange company in 2018. So two years ago, almost two and a half years ago. Um, so I took a year off and uh, during my year off, I was still participating in the industry, going to a lot of conferences, giving, giving talks and all that stuff. And by the end of 2018, I realized there's one thing that has not been solved, which is how do we give normal people access to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in an easy way, right? The only, so the only way to store cryptocurrency, hold it is in a wallet. And there, there has been a, a plethora of wallet solutions, whether it's hardware wallets, electronic wallets, uh, to custodial wallets, mobile software app wallets, as well as desktop PC wallets. And of course, we have the classic exchanges and custodial wallets. So it ranges from very technical, very difficult, very geeky technology, computer chips and, and cables and pin codes and passphrases to something very simple like opening an account on, on an exchange or opening an account on a custodial wallet. But regardless, I, I felt like there wasn't a great solution for the truly new person. So what we created was, um, I have one in front of me. We created this uh, stainless steel. It's called the Real Series Bitcoin Wallet. And uh, it's a non-electronic. So what's special about this is we made this into a non-electronic device that stores cryptocurrency. In essence, 
uh, in essence, what it is is you just peel, you can peel off the top sticker, and uh, there's a private key. There's an encrypted private key underneath here, and of course, there's also a passphrase that goes with it at the very bottom. You scratch off the bottom for a passphrase. So the point is that with this device, you can store Bitcoin and cryptocurrency on there in a sort of non-electronic inert format, and it's it, it gets locked into this account. Uh, only you, uh, the owner of this wallet, will have the exclusive control because you have the passphrase and the private key, and then you can store it for years. I mean, I think I think my wallet is the only wallet in the world that's designed for 20 years of longevity. Or think about that. Think about your apps. Think about your desktop clients. Think about your hardware wallets. Think about your custodial exchanges. Which wallet can you store Bitcoin in there and be confident that you can have it for the next 20 years, right? Certainly for exchanges. I mean, some will be around 20 years from now, but it's a crapshoot in terms of which ones will go bust, which ones will go bankrupt, which ones will go ha get hacked. Uh, and then the hardware wallets, I mean, not even five years. I mean, think about hardware wallets, the ones, um, do I have any examples? I have some examples. There's some examples. I don't want to name any brands, but some look like this. You know, some look like, uh, look like this, a USB drive. Um, and some look like cards, right? Some some are cards with, uh, uh, you know, NFCs chips and uh, Bluetooth chips and so on and so forth. I think those devices, they look great. They look high tech today. But the question is, what about compatibility? What happens in three years? What happens in five years? Do you have to flash the ROM? Do you have to upgrade the firmware? Do you have to, you know, uh, reassemble the, the battery because the battery started leaking? You know, stuff like that. So I really want to make something that's really lasting long lasting that you can hold um, and keep it in a safe and hide it in your bed mattress somewhere for 20 years. You can literally put in a time capsule, drop some Bitcoins in here and come back 20 years from now when the Bitcoin goes up to a million dollars and you can have uh, you can have something that's really worthwhile in here. Yeah. So and it's really easy. The, the key thing is, I forgot to tell you, um, the key feature of this is no setup. No setup. That means that you buy it, you open the box, you can use it straight out of the box. You don't need to configure anything. There's nothing to back up. There's no passphrase pin codes. So even if you die, if you get hit by a bus, you can transition this to your next of kin and they can have the Bitcoins, right? So that, that was very important to me. There you go. And, uh, you know, there, I guess there are trade-offs, however you uh, decide to um, store and access your Bitcoin. There are going to be yes. trade-offs. Uh, yep. You've gone this route. What, uh, yep. and your company is based uh, partly in China, partly in the U.S. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little about that? You know, you've run yeah. businesses yeah. in China for a long time. Uh, do you feel differently about that now? And, and how do you approach it uh, in 2020 yeah. versus 2011, I guess? So um, so I moved to China in 2006. So I've been in China for, for a long, long time. For, yeah. for what is it? Your Walmart 14. CTO in China. Yeah, I was Walmart's uh, e-commerce CTO, uh, VP of technology, actually. That was yeah. in 2012, 2011, 2012. Um, and then I got into BTC China, got started with that. So I've been in China for many years. I started, uh, you know, BTC China in, uh, in, in China. And um, for Ballet, for this company, our headquarters, our global headquarters is actually in the U.S. in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's our global headquarters. But I also have a large uh, team in China, in Shanghai, actually. So we have our, what we call a development center, R&D center in China. We have about 20 people there. And we have some more people in Las Vegas. We actually, so the software and all that is done in China. Uh, we have a great team of software engineers, designers, and these are all people I've worked with very closely during my BTCC days. So I was very fortunate that they were able to come join me for this new venture. 
And then for, for Las Vegas, we do manufacturing, we do final assembly and packaging. Uh, the reason I mentioned this is because the two components, the, 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 the electronic, uh, what do you call it, the encrypted private key and the passphrase, these are, these are two critical components for the private key, okay? So we don't generate the private key, but we generate the components for the private key. So these two components, because they're sort of critical, we actually generate them in two different locations. So you generate the, the passphrase in Las Vegas, and we generate the encrypted private key in China. So they get, they get put onto the card in different steps. So, so that's why the cards, the stainless steel cards themselves are sourced in China. So they go through China, we put the sticker on, we come to the US, and then we laser etch the passphrase. So that's why uh, none, no one, not even myself, can see both pieces of information at the same time. So this is both for the technical sort of security aspect of how to ensure that this is really bulletproof uh, in the sense of security. Yeah. And yeah, it's good to sense. have a U.S.-based company. Um, I, I'm a U.S. citizen, so I pay U.S. taxes anyways. And uh, so for our investors, U.S. dollar investors, it all makes sense to have a U.S.-based US company. And then for China, it's just an R&D center sourcing for manufacturing. And then we sell this globally. So we, we actually reached a very important milestone this week. Um, we're going to have a press release in the, in the next day or two. We just reached a milestone where we now have customer deposits uh, reaching $21 million globally. That means for all the Bally wallets we've sold in the last nine months all over the world, uh, the deposits cumulative have been have reached over 21 million US dollars. So that's a, that's a very, very big milestone. 21. It's an important number. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and is there, uh, under, understand how, uh, you know, y'all are, y'all are uh, handling the security aspect of this. There has been a little bit of pushback maybe on uh, the trusted aspect of uh, ballet yeah. being in the middle. And again, there are trade-offs and all these things. Of uh, course. So uh, operating between the US and China, uh, overall, more than just uh, kind of ballet specifically and, and uh, you know, how the hardware is uh, you know, created, managed. Uh, how has working in China changed over the last seven years, maybe? Is, is any kind of comments on situation of having a business in China now versus 2011? Yeah, uh, um, China, China is a great environment. I, I'm currently in the, in the US and I plan to go back to China later this year when they open the borders, uh, probably, yeah. hopefully within a few months. Um, my team is there. They're waiting for me to go back. Uh, the essentially, it's a great. It's especially Shanghai as a metropolitan, cosmopolitan city. A lot of great, great people. Very talented tech people. Very smart, experienced, and all. Also, a lot of you know crypto, blockchain industry people as well. Um, so I've enjoyed. I've enjoyed working with my team. Of course, uh, you know you have to learn the Chinese language. Um, you have to be well versed in that to to talk to work with the locals, and in terms of business practices, there's still a, there is still a culture gap between the, you know the Eastern philosophy of how business is conducted versus the more Western ways. So there there are some challenges there if you're coming from outside from Western world coming into China to do business. But the most important thing is find a trusted partner, find someone that you inherently trust uh, that that can help you guide you through the process of working in China, doing business in China. Um, and of course, uh, this year, you know, with the, the big changes of, of this year, you know, with the coronavirus, you know, the shutdowns and all that, and we saw the shutdown. China led the led the world with with the early shutdowns in February. Yeah. Uh, the whole month of February was essentially gone. Right at the time, it was like we're very worrisome. But now, in hindsight, you know, taking these drastic actions, closing the borders, really helped China recover fast from the coronavirus. Whereas most of the world is still reeling and dealing with it right now. So. 
So we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully there's a vaccine come out soon. But other than that, it's, it might be a really tough year and next year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so kind of the, the, that also some, the context of, of the virus. Uh, yeah. Are you seeing any shipping issues, in and out issues with anything related oh, yeah. to that or the... Uh, yeah. yeah. Let me tell you about that. So, so because we make physical devices that has to be shipped from China to the U.S. for logistics, for manufacturing... So this is the first time for me to, to run a company with physical manufacturing and logistics and aspect. So we had to do the formal declaration of all our material, raw material for export from China and import into, into the USA. And of course, you know that this year was the big year for the trade war, right? So we got caught in that. So our, our products, unfortunately, uh, our, our raw materials and all that have been slapped with the 20% punitive mm. tariff. So besides the, whatever the normal tariff is, they add another 20% on that. So it's roughly 25%. So everything we ship over from China to the U.S., there's an automatic 25% tariff that the U.S. charges on that. And not only – I mean, the U.S. is charging us money, giving us crap about that, right? But not only that, but the China government itself, their, their import-export people are also giving us a lot of, a lot of headaches. Because, because we're shipping to the U.S., because China and U.S. are not on good terms right now, the, the exporting side, they're very stringent. They just, they just like go through the documents, like any small error, you know, mistake, you know, unintentional, of course, uh, they find, they kick it back and they, they, they deny the export and we have to mm-hmm. go and fill out the forms again and, and submit it again. So it's, it's been quite a challenge. And, and I know a lot of companies are facing that. It's just that they don't talk about it. But uh, even for us, a small company, we're seeing a lot of the challenges. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of kind of stopping and starting of, of uh, negotiations and reaching points and, uh, you know, things can turn on that. That's, that's tough. Yeah, exactly. For, uh, and and it's true because every, you know, every other week or every other month, you know, the trade talks either are slightly on the positive or slightly on the negative. When things go bad, it's funny. There's a lot of retaliation, you know, in the, in, at the lower level in the sense that they, they just make it, make it harder. You just make it harder yeah. for U.S.-China commerce. Uh, and it happens on the U.S. side as well. Like when we're importing machines, uh, for, for example, the, the, the machines to do the laser, uh, some of these are sourced from China, at least we try to. And, um, and apparently laser, laser etching devices need, need FDA clearance. FDA is a Food and Drug Administration. And why are they involved? Well, because laser has, has, a, has the whatever chemical stuff, has a laser stuff that can oh, wow. damage eyes. So it's regulated by the FDA. So if the FDA inspectors go in, so we actually had a shipment. We had machines that went in, came into a Las Vegas office from China, and the FDA inspection did not pass, and the machine had to get sent back to China. Wow. I mean, that was just—I mean, that was just a, a huge headache that happened oh, yeah. you know, six months ago. Yeah. yeah. So, so we had to source them from the U.S. You know, it's like stuff like that. Yeah. Very difficult. That, yeah. Any thoughts on VSET? So, to me, I'll—I'll I'll pour some cold water on it. Uh, the Chinese expression. Um, to me, it's just another form of, of the paper money. So, so you know, so, so if, in terms of cash money, people think of coins and paper notes, right? Paper notes. And paper money traditionally used to be real paper made of paper, printed material paper they could tear apart, okay? Now, what they did in the last 10, 15, 20 years was they upgraded them to polymer. So polymer is a kind of plastic. It makes these really high-quality notes that look great. Some even have transparency. They can't, they're tear-proof, okay? They're terrible. They're great. Many countries, uh, European countries, the U.S. doesn't have yet, but many European countries, Asian countries have polymer notes. My point is this. My point is the DCEP, uh, the central bank digital currency, to me, it's just another form of that paper note. 
that's a digital form. Because in the end, you're still talking about it's, it's running B. You're still saying that it's uh, issued by the central bank. You're still saying that the, the, the amount of issuance is, again, once again, controlled by the central bank. So more or less, the inflation and all that issues remains. The over-issuance of printing of it, the printing of it remains. And the, in the end, worse off is they actually can monitor the account um, and they can set limits on who can transfer to who or how much you can transfer in a single day and they could reverse transactions, right? So these are the really, the, to me, the real killers that in the mm-hmm. sense that they're, they're not, they're, they're, show, they're non, no goals for me, right? To me, that's not a true digital currency. I mean, they can yeah. call it digital currency for all you want, but for me, that's not the notion of a decentralized digital currency that I value in Bitcoin. Yeah, so to me, all, it's a different point where Bitcoin much really closer, does differentiate itself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So to me, that is, is, is probably closer to Tether and not even as good as Tether, uh, right? So, so at best, it's Tether, but it's not even nearly as good as Tether because Tether, at least, there's, there's a, I can send it to you without someone else's control, right? Without someone else telling us what I can send to you and not send to you. So, yeah. And Tether yeah. uh, playing a pretty central role in, in uh, what's maybe a narrative of this next cycle of, of DeFi here. Yeah, <laughs> whether, yeah whether, maybe. Whether we, we, uh, whether we believe in that or not. Uh, yeah. Well, cool. Uh, Bobby, thanks for your time, man. Uh, great yes, to indeed. catch up and and, uh, and hear your thoughts on current events and current cycles and, and macro environment. Always good to talk. Yeah, good. Thank you, John. Reminder, all of the content in this episode is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. <laughs>